Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. Uh, it is I, Sanson Jones here, and today we've got an awesome guest. His name is Dr. Josh Bullock, and he's a sociologist, a lecturer at Kingston University. And why I'm so excited to have him here is that I've known him for years now. He came to the Sunday Assembly first in about 2013, when Sunday Assembly just started, and the project caught his mind. And so he wrote his whole PhD on it. I think he's the first person who ever wrote their PhD on Sunday Assembly. So he has dug into the guts of the whole movement. He's interviewed loads of people. And so if you are interested in secular spirituality, if you're interested in whether you can have church for people who aren't religious, if you're interested in inclusive congregations, well, firstly, this is the right podcast for you. But he is definitely the right person to hear. And you're going to find out that what we basically spoke to him about is who joins congregations, who joins the Sunday Assembly, because he really met them, he spoke to them, and why do they do it? He has conducted hundreds of hours of interviews and is just really great company. So... Thank you so much for listening. If you love what we talk about, we also have a discussion group, a community, the Life on This community. You can go and find a link to it in the comments, and we'd love to have you join there. So I'm going to get out of the way. Here is Dr. Josh Bullock with my co-host, James Croft. Welcome to the Life on This podcast. We have James here. How's it going, James? It's going great, thank you. Joining you from autumnal St. Louis, Missouri, with a crisp breeze in the air. It's lovely. Dr. Josh Bullock on the line to discuss. Uh, Josh has done his PhD about Sunday Assembly, and we're going to be diving into that. Josh, what's going on with you? Hello, Sanderson. Hi, James. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, I mean, it's been a busy week. So I'm in Kingston-upon-Thames. Uh, I'm a lecturer at Kingston and uh, we are just about to welcome our new students on Monday. So it's been all go, 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 induction week, lots of freshers. Uh, so it's going to be an exciting new week as they're coming back to face-to-face, real-world uh, communications. It feels quite weird for you to say uh, I'm a lecturer here because when uh, we first met, way back when, you had just finished your master's and were... Uh, and we're starting to research Sunday Assembly. And so look at you, all grown up. I know, I do have the Sunday Assembly to thank for lots of things. So, yeah. Uh, I will, uh, you know, uh, really sort of call you up on that favour when stuff gets gets pretty it's dark. Really hairy. <laughs> uh, and we're going to go and speak to you about what you learn in your PhD on Sunday Assembly. Uh, and we're going to get there via our first question. This is our new first question, which is lifefulness is all about treating life as though it is sacred, no matter where you think it comes from, whether it is from a cold, uncaring universe or from a beneficent deity. What happens if we all treat life itself as though it is the most precious thing out there? So, you know, what is uh, what's wonderful about life for you, Josh? What makes life sacred? I think having connections with people was very important. So friends and family, ultimately. Um, I did like what you just said about treating all life as sacred, though, Sanderson, because I drive everybody crazy when I go on holiday, because when a wasp flies into the swimming pool, I have to kind of put, put down my drink and, and get the, you know, the, the little net out to help the wasp. So, so I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I do try to treat all life uh, as sacred. But for me, I think the most important thing is, is, is connections with people, family and friends. 
Mm. Uh, when was the last time you, or a time that you felt like really truly alive? Oh, actually, the, the World Cup final <laughs> uh, with England and Italy. Um, yes. So there was a lot of uh, excitement about that, a lot of buzz as a football fan. Um, and that World Cup final, uh, you know, being surrounded by lots of people, uh, lots of cheering. I think that was that was a good time to to be alive, despite us losing uh, in the final. Um, you know, there was a lot of excitement around that. I think there's, and we haven't yet explored it on the podcast, but though we've spoken about it tangentially, so much of that religious drive that we have in ourselves has been sucked into sport. Mm-hmm. That people commit their whole lives to it. It's some of the most meaningful times in people's lives. When I go on my morning jog around the cemetery, uh, there is someone who's got the Liverpool crest on their their grave. And I was like, that is why people went mental when the European Super League uh, kicked off. Uh, James is soon going to say something like, oh, I see you guys like sports ball. How many goal points were there? You're not one of those people. I try not to be. I think that people should be passionate about what they are passionate about. And I'm glad that people find excitement in sport. I watched the final myself from here in the United States. And I wish I'd actually been more, if sport had been more welcoming to me when I was a kid, because I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. So I, I try not to do this sports ball thing. People should love what they love. Oh, James, that is a great answer. And in uh, sort of bringing up the fact that you were made to feel excluded from sport, now I feel like an absolute shitbag for uh, really pushing on that. Uh, I had a PE teacher who separated the class into three groups. One was the super competitive, like hot jock group where they would all like really play hardcore. The other group was like, yeah, let's just play for fun group. And they would do the sport, but they would just do it less intensely. And then there was me and the other queer kids and weirdos. And we just were told to sit on the side and not participate at all. We just sat down and I was perfectly happy with that as a kid. <laughs> oh, so you were happy. I was going to say that story makes me so angry. but Oh, it makes I'm... me angry in retrospect because it was such a bad thing to do as a teacher. But at the time, I was like, yeah, this stuff is not for me. So, you know. <laughs> uh, the uh, You've told that story before. <laughs> it makes me, makes me sad. Uh, and our next opening uh, question, the second one, is like, what is there from uh, the world of religion or congregations, which you think uh, our secular society could learn from or have more of? I think the most important thing is kind of in what you already said. A, a lot of the things which secular people do or, or necessarily is not, not congregate and not gather together in, in groups. Um, and there's a lot of magical things which happen, I think, in congregations um, in terms of social capital, uh, you, you know, uniting with other people who have similar um, kind of values as yourself. Um, this is a very special thing to do to, to gather with other people. And for, you know, many years and still to a certain extent, the non-religious are kind of missing out on that, I think. Uh, James, I can already feel that we've got our ideal guest on, someone who uh, really, really agrees with what we do, do and will have a whole new load of arguments as to uh, why we're doing the right thing. Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> When you heard that uh, Josh had written his PhD on Sunday Assembly and Secular Congregations, was there any one question that you thought, oh, this is something that I would like to know? Why do people join? That was the main thing, particularly because I run a very similar congregation. And that's the question we're always asking is, what is the reason people actually choose to commit to the community so we can be more welcoming to more people? Josh, 
What do you say to that? I think it's an excellent question. That is basically the crux of the PhD, you know, in a kind of post-Christian society. Why are people joining the Sunday Assembly? What, what is it about the Sunday Assembly in this particular climate, which is, which is so appealing? Um, where to start? I mean, it, it's not just about entertainment, is it? I think we can, we can agree on that because in London, you can be entertained pretty much everywhere you go, right? Um, or you can even be entertained from bed. You can just sit on your on your laptop. You can watch a TED talk. You don't even need to leave, leave the house. So, so fundamentally, it's, it's not just about entertainment. Although having conga lines and nice songs, you know, does help. It, it leaves a, a nice, um, you know, it's a nice way to start the morning. Um, but I think it taps into a, a wider need for for belonging, um, and not just community, but but, but a sense of sense of belonging. Um, which a lot of people, uh, or at least the people I spoke to in my ethnography of the Sunday Assembly, uh, this is one of the main things that they were seeking uh, to find. And lots of them have been on quests to find it. You know, this wasn't, the Sunday Assembly wasn't the, the, the first part of their journey. Some of them were part of other groups, um, things like Skeptics in the Pub or Women's Institute. So they were part of other things as well. Um, but I really think the crux of why people are attending is because a lot of these people have grown up in a society where they did go to church when they were younger, in particular, a, a Christian church. Um, and since they've um, become an adult, they, they might have transitioned, become non-religious. Um, but they're still seeking that kind of sense of connection and belonging and community that they once had. But to go back to a church would be hypocritical of their beliefs now. Um, so, so they're seeking an alternative. And I think that's where the Sunday Assembly pops up to fill that um, kind of halfway house, I guess. The halfway house makes it sound as though it's a recovery and that eventually the uh, the end goal <laughs> is no longer having to need that at all. So that's not probably going to be a pull quote uh, that we uh, slap on the side of it. And well, it Some would be... people do think of it like that, though, Sanderson. And I encounter mm. that a lot in America, where people think that what we do is sort of transition people out towards a final secularism, right? Where some people need something like a church because they used to be religious and they miss it. And so they'll come to us for a time and then they'll get over it and then they won't need it anymore. And they'll become a proper secular person. That's how some people within the broader non-religious community in the United States think of what we do and very much as a halfway house of detoxing from religion. I disagree with that analysis, but it's interesting that it's there. Yeah. And I want to spend so much time on uh, why uh, the secular humanist movement was uh, built by people who fundamentally don't understand community or congregation and know not of what they talk, but (laughs) I will not. Uh, What I'd actually love to do is like, could you just go and describe to uh, like start off by actually talking about what is the research you did in Sunday Assembly, what was the driving force behind it? Like, give people an overview of your PhD and your work. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I um, it really started when I was doing my masters at Bristol University, and it was on why and how the deeply religious lose their faith. So, I was super interested in people who were once really uh, religious, and then you know, why would they uh, leave their faith? And at the similar time, um, the Sunday Assembly was just murmurs. I heard ripples of, of an atheist church, or so it was dubbed back in 2013. Um, and I went to the first ever Easter for Atheists, as it was called in 2013. You might remember Sanderson. Uh, you, were, um, you were giving the talk that day. Uh, and it was super interesting because 
I remember turning up early because I was told that if you want to go, you know, you need to turn up early to guarantee a seat. And it was in a deconsecrated church in North London. And uh, we were all queuing up at this church. And I can remember like, vividly a, a van driver just leaning his head out the window and just looking at all of us queuing outside of a church on a Sunday morning and thinking, you know, gosh, that, that church hasn't been busy for a while. What's going on there? So I thought something was interesting uh, was transpiring. So, so I, I applied to do my PhD on the Sunday Assembly, as I thought um, studying the Sunday Assembly could offer us answers about the kind of changing religious dynamics of the UK. So I did a what's known as an ethnography. It's like a um, participant obs- observation for about 18 months. Um, and as part of that observation, I attended as many Sunday Assemblies as I could. I went to Utrecht with you guys for your annual conference. I attended things like article club and dance groups and all sorts of things, wonder clubs. Um, And I interviewed people at the Sunday Assembly to ask, you know, the very questions that you're asking me today. Why why are you coming to the Sunday Assembly? Why why do they come to the Sunday Assembly? Well, well, yeah, I mean, we've, we've covered this a little bit in terms of it's not just about entertainment. But one thing which I did find, which I thought was quite interesting is a lot of people, I don't know if you've had this experience, Sanderson, seem to attend the Sunday Assembly during times of crisis or, or, during, or during times of like transitions in life. And it might be, which is the case in some, some of the people I spoke to after a breakup, it might be moving to London to you know, start new studies and feeling quite lonely. It might be that friends are getting married, having babies, moving away, and people are still single. Um, so it's that sense of you know, wanting to be a part of something when things might be, you know, a, a little bit up and down. That's something which I've certainly uh, heard before. And when you were speaking about like the people who came and then maybe sort of left, that there is, you know, there is something really valuable in doing that, you know, instead of looking at it as this is someone who we missed out on becoming a long-term member, you know, having a place where people can go and find that sanctuary and support and sucker and other words which begin with S is really useful you know like a hospital hasn't failed because people leave you know it's really important but i think that there is then something about people who once they go and get established feeling this is a place where i can grow into the best version of myself and that that is a that's a different place and a different space and i don't know if we've we haven't yet been fully able to go and build all the different things you need for that because you need a different thing for someone to like go and get their bearings and go and work out the next step than someone saying oh i see this which is almost like a university i see this as a place where i will grow spiritually and be on a lifetime journey and you need more resources to go and not only more resources, there's other ways of doing it, but like it's a more complete offer. And that's something which uh, I really want to work on. And one of the reasons for doing the Lifefulness Project was realizing that as like within Sunday Assembly, because we didn't have as much time to dedicate to that stuff because we're not that that big a charity, uh, we weren't really able to sort of expand the offer to use a really awful word uh, for something which is, uh, you know, really soulful. Uh, James, is that something you experience at the Ethical Society? The needs of different people and the, the different things that we're trying to do for them. 
Yes. I was just thinking as you were talking, one of the challenges for groups like ours is that because there are so few of them, we tend to draw a wide range of people with a wide range of needs, which they cannot get met elsewhere. One of the things that I see in the congregational growth literature is repeated emphasis on focus. So the congregation is supposed to do one thing. Right? It's supposed to be the best place to bring your kids for Christian education or the best place to go to meet young adults. And don't try and be everything for everyone because there's always another church that can do the thing that you're not good at. Not the case for us. And that makes our job incredibly difficult because we get people who want personal development and growth. And we get people who want pastoral care and counseling. We get people who are transitioning out of religion, and that's what the space is for them. And we get people who have been confirmed non-religious people all their lives, and they're not looking to talk about religious faith at all. So it does cause significant challenges that other congregations of more numerous denominations don't face. Preach, preach, preach. That is something that I have encountered as well, because then every decision you make is like, you are excluding this person from all community. Instead yes, of like right. saying, actually, you can just go down the road and you can go to the hop on one leg and sort of hum a dirge group, because that's what you're really into. I think COVID has made it worse, right? We've had a real challenge now. I was talking to a Christian minister colleague of mine yesterday. She's wonderful. She She's the uh, reverend of a Presbyterian church in town. And we're talking about how she decided that now they're back in person, she's not going to prioritize the online experience because she's like, I'm not an online church. If people want online church, they can get online church anywhere. And they don't have to come to us for that. So sorry to our members who don't want to come back in person, but we're just going to focus on the in-person experience. And I was thinking to myself, I can't do that because there isn't an online equivalent of what we do anywhere in America. There's nowhere that has the resources our congregation has that could do it as well as we could do it. So I feel like a sense of responsibility to be that place for people if they need it, but it means that we keep taking on more and more things that we organizationally are very difficult to do. So I've been thinking a lot about how much we force ourselves to do because of the scarcity of institutions like ours. I go, whenever I go to my husband's um, home, it's about an hour east of St. Louis in the rural wilds of Illinois, I pass more than a hundred Christian churches and I pass one ethical society, one humanist congregation in that whole space. There are four Christian churches in his town of like 6,000 people. We have one ethical society in the state. So it's just wild the expectations that communities like ours are uh, taking on. Oh, that just makes me want to get better at this because uh, there should be different versions. Uh, uh, and this really points to one thing which had a lot of interest online when we asked for questions, uh, questions to ask the guy who wrote the PhD. And a big one was about who attends a Sunday assembly and why they attend. And so it'd be great to like go and find, yeah, what did you learn about the people who attend Sunday assembly? Um well, one thing, so, you know, they're, they're quite similar in terms of age, um, life experiences, jobs. Um, a sociologist called Max Weber calls this a, like an ideal type. Um, and I, I named my ideal type, which I think is quite unusual. I, na I named her Jane. And, and Jane represents the congregation in so many ways. 
um, in terms of her upbringing. So she, you know, she would have gone to probably an evangelical or, or Christian church growing up. Um, she, uh, you know, probably enjoyed it. She's probably quite nostalgic about her her childhood. Um, but you know, as she grew up and, and maybe went to university, um, you know, she could no longer believe in the things she used to. Um, Jane, like many of the congregation, I imagine, are probably quite creative, maybe freelancing jobs. Um, Jane's also white. Um, she's also 34, which I think is an important age because the Sunday Assembly isn't a um, isn't a student movement, as you'll know, Sanderson. It's, it's you know. Um, lots of people in their 30s and 40s um, and you know I, so so Jane kind of represents um, much of the congregation I think in terms of uh, money social class you know where she shops where she what she listens to um, and, and might be one of the reasons why she found the Sunday Assembly because it's likely you know she would have found the Sunday Assembly maybe in Time Out magazine or The Guardian or, or BBC Radio whatever it might be um, and, you know, I, I see lots of people going through this same kind of, um, I guess, transition um, from, from religion to non-religion. Um, and I think living in London is quite a lonely area. So so it's often, you know, people seek out something different. And, and Sunday Assembly definitely spoke to Jane based on all of her, you know, kind of experiences. It's really interesting from the point of view of people who build congregations, they would say, right, Jane is your person do everything to get more of Jane, you know, in, in the sense, because there'd be other congregations where the average person is, is Bob, who's 25. And, you know, they're the person that you have to speak to. Interestingly, I spoke to one pastor who his theory was quite weird, was that his theory was that uh, the key to success in a congregation was getting old people because old people have money and they pay for things. And then, in order to get old people, they like to hang out with children. So in order to get children, you've got to make it okay for the parents. So you create it for the parents, and then that's how you get a congregation which funds itself. And I was like, oh, wow, that's sort of uh, a number of jumps there. Yeah, that seems a bit convoluted to me. But then again, he like ran three really successful churches and had gone and uh, launched them. So clearly knows of what he speaks. Uh, and then why do you think it is that there are – it is mostly white. What did people say about that? Well, first of all, um, lots of Church of England leavers are white people. Um, like the demographic of those leaving Christianity in the UK are, are mainly white people. Actually, the kind of main churches in, in London do, do extremely well at retaining their congregations. Um, so, so that's firstly. I think maybe secondly, it's, um, you know, the idea of bringing a friend, isn't it? And, and the idea of like homophily, you know, birds of a feather fly together. Um, so typically, you know, if, if you're going to bring a friend along, it's likely that they're going to be the same to you, I guess, in terms of age, perhaps, and, and also experiences. And, and thus, you're slowly building up a more homogenous profile, aren't you? Um, and maybe not tack, tap, tapping into other, uh, you know, other names, other kind of ideal types who might need the Sunday Assembly as well. Yeah, I find that so interesting because uh, on the research in certainly in the UK around uh, non-religion by ethnicity, it's something like, you know, 95% or 96% of the people who are non-religious are white. And so you might look at a non-religious congregation and think these are so white and then be like, well, he's kind of, 
you know, in line with what you would expect. And then the da- downside of that is that then uh, the people who uh, are of color, let's say, because that's when it's most obvious, will turn up. And if they only see, you know, two or three, they'll be like, this isn't for me because there's not many people like me here. And so it's really like hard to go and get out of that loop. Uh, James, I'm sure the same thing has happened for you. Have you found anything which works? The Ethical Society of St. Louis's congregation is overwhelmingly white, and it has been a matter of concern and an explicit goal of our congregation to improve our racial diversity for many years. And the truth is we have been basically utterly unsuccessful. And so one of the things we're actually doing, working with an outside consultant right now to do a sort of end-to-end review of our equity policies and everything that we do to see why that is. Because I think our fundamental assumption is that it is not humanistic to have a racially segregated congregation, right? That it is not in line with our values for the overwhelming majority of our members to be white. And that despite the fact that it is true in the United States, as it sounds like it's true in the UK, that the percentage of non-religious people by race skews heavily white, that there are plenty of black non-religious people in St. Louis, such that we could have thousands of members um, who are people of color that we don't have. And so we have this question, what are we doing, which is keeping people of color away? Because that's, that's the basic assumption. We're doing something that is keeping people of color away. Um, And I think, obviously, this conversation can't be held outside the context of white supremacy and racism. We live in very white supremacist and racist cultures, and that infects all our institutions by default. So unless they're actively anti-racist all through, it's no surprise that there is going to be a prevalence of white folk attending. I also think that, frankly speaking, every congregational movement has the same problem. I've done some research into racial diversity within congregations and genuinely racially diverse congregations are exceptionally rare. There are hardly any in any religious grouping that are genuinely racially diverse. So if you go to most of the Protestant Christian congregations that are not explicitly black churches in St. Louis, for instance, they're almost all overwhelmingly white. That's not an excuse to do better, but it is, we are fighting against sociological trends that are very difficult to buck. But I, I think... But I'm just going to jump in there. So, I mean, that is goes to a testament to exactly how hard it is, because I think people in our movements, the amount of hand-wringing around this is, you know, astronomical, that people really w- want it to be different. And if there are thousands of uh, ministers who I'm sure have very similar conversations in their liberal Protestant uh, churches or whatever it might be, all about getting more uh, sort of African-Americans or people of colour, whatever you might use, uh, into their church. And they're going to be very well funded. And they're, you know, the, there's a target uh, market of people who already believe all the things they believe. I it's like it's clearly a very, very hard problem to solve, uh, even in a religious space. And what's quite interesting is one of our board members, uh, who uh, was Sri Lankan, and she she was a Sri Lankan Christian, and she she was always like, "Guys, we've got churches, like you know, <laughs> get better at 
you know, having more of these congregations because the people who are in greatest need of community are white people <laughs> because the uh, because there are so many, uh, you know, churches which reflect the religious beliefs of people from Asian or, uh, you know, uh, black backgrounds. And, you know, that was her position. You know, we constantly kept on trying, though. But, uh, yeah, it is it's so uh, complicated to uh, go and uh, untangle. And I really think, you know, it's something we're going to dig into more. Uh, was there uh, any other surprising things when you looked at, you know, who's turning up and uh, to the congregation or even like, why do you think those people were turning? I've gone to this again and again, but it's something that people were really interested in. And you've written an ethnography about it. So this is what it's about. Yeah. I mean, what was interesting? I found it quite interesting though, that people attended the Sunday assembly, just the kind of main, um, like the main service, and, and then expected kind of life-changing um, things to happen, right? Because in terms of congregation, it's not just a couple of hours on a Sunday, is it? It's, it's uh, you know, I think people found the most or, or the greatest sense of belonging and connection when they do other things outside of that Sunday kind of service, so, so that, you know, there is a core number of people that the Sunday Assembly has changed their life for, for the better. And, and it's often that these people do, do more than one thing. So, so they'll um, be involved in other things which happen midweek or they'll see people outside of the congregation uh, socially for, for various different things. Um, and it's these people, I think, who are, who are finding the, the greatest sense of, of belonging. I mean, that's something which I say to people when they come along. They're like, oh, this is a really fun thing. And like, you're, it's almost as though you're looking at pi the picture of the community here. You're watching it on TV. Like, the actually comes alive when you're involved in the other areas because that's where the community comes from. And, yeah, I think that people uh, do assume turning up is going to be that flip the switch, but that's not, that's not the sort of conception for people who have been to church before people who have been involved in congregations. And I think this is one of the reasons why Sunday Assembly has been even more successful in the US and the UK is they know what you've got to do to be part of one. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if I turn up here, I've also got to, you know, help out, volunteer, to go to these different things. It's a, it's a skill that they've uh, developed uh, as well. Uh, I... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, I really loved the section of your PhD when you actually spoke about what is it that people believe, and uh, you introduced the idea of orism, which I which I loved. Uh, but yeah, like around how that do you question, spell that word? It's it's people really love it. O A R I S M. People turn up because they just really love oars. And anything which moves boats uh, in, which is not a sail or a propeller, that's the foundational thing. But lots of uh, lots of people who love to go into Henley Regatta, as the as you mentioned in your research, uh, the uh, it's a a w e i s m. Uh, the I was trying to help our listeners there who might not have understood that, but no, I appreciate. <laughs> Sorry. You. By the way, just a bit of a side note. I always feel really sorry for the people who probably are better podcasters because of it, who uh, I'm thinking of Michael Barbaro on the uh, the Daily podcast from the New York Times. And so he's a political reporter who's had, you know, 40 years experience. He'll be like, hmm, so what is the Senate? And he goes, oh, that's interesting. Why should the president be a nice person? And he's got to, you're like, oh, mate, you, you know all the answers to this. 
to debase yourself. Uh, but so yeah. what? So wait for me. For me though, what is orism? Because I like that word as well. I think people should know what it is. I think that's cool. Well, we were also going to get to that. I wasn't just going to go for the side thing. So yeah, take it away. The, the, the first part of the question, what's orism? What do people believe in the Wonder Moore area of Sunday Assembly? So orism was um, first introduced, I think, by Phil Zuckerman, who is an American academic. Um, and he re- writes about it in a book called The Secular Life. Um, and I was interested in this because... Um, you know, the Sunday Assembly's motto has, has the wonder more in it, right? And, and I think for me... And by the way, the Sunday Assembly's motto is live better, help often, and wonder more. I'm really getting into this Maiko Barbaro thing. You are, now. you are. Um, I think for wondering, you know, wondering's good, but often wondering leads to trying to find answers. Um, where, and I think that's very different to being in a state of awe about something, um, you know, or thinking about uh, or, or being connected to something... I guess, bigger than yourself or, or, or having kind of a, a moment of stillness. Um, and I don't know, typically I find awe in nature. So I was uh, in Cornwall uh, a couple of weeks ago and there's a beach called Godrevi and it's where the seals go. And it's absolutely amazing because nobody can go down there and disturb them. So you're just viewing them from a, from a stand you know, point. And it's those kind of moments, of, at least for me, that I, I feel awe, I think, in, in, in terms of nature. The, by the way, I went and uh, got in my notes, went and sort of uh, copied Zuckerman's definition of orism. Orism encapsulates the notion that existence is ultimately a beautiful mystery, that being alive is a wellspring of wonder, and that deepest questions of existence, creation, time and space are so powerful as to inspire deep feelings of joy, poignancy and sublime awe. Orism humbly, happily rests on a belief that no one will ever really know why we are here or how the universe came into being or why. And this insight renders us weak in the knees while simultaneously spurring us on to dance. Hello. I was going to say that's basically written to describe Sanderson, isn't it? Let's be honest. That is a word for you. <laughs> it, yeah, but I think that that was really interesting reading it from my point of view because uh, the that is the sort of drive behind Sunday Assembly. The It's a celebration of life. It is the idea that if we you were to genuinely contemplate what good fortune it is to be alive and the difference between being alive and not and the opportunities that it gives you is to be struck down with a wonder so severe it will make you want to start a church. Uh, and uh, and it's, I find it really interesting that if you do really, really love something and think it's so important, then what you want to do is you want to go and get other people to also feel the same way and to go and like uh, have this uh, uh, insight or have this ability to connect to the world and you want to sing songs about it and you want to gather together and you want to try to make the world better. And I think there's something in that spiritual drive, which when you unlock it, you know, the church seems to be a logical response to it. I, I would, I would definitely agree, Samson. Yeah, uh, there, there was no question at the end of that, and so that sort of stunned silence. <laughs> yeah, from, that, uh, that awkward pause. Very good. Uh, very yeah, good. and next level podcasting. <laughs> One thing that you do deal with is this idea of non-religious spirituality. For a lot of people, that is an idea that they find hard to get their head around. What did your research tell you about non-religious spirituality? I mean, at least for the majority of the people I spoke to, spirituality was still a kind of very spooky word, a, a, a turn-off word. You know, they didn't like to say that they were spiritual. 
Um, and they would separate wholeheartedly things like mindfulness from spirituality. So you might say that they practice mindfulness or, or well-being exercises, but that didn't make them spiritual. And that's interesting, I think, because, you know, during one assembly, I can remember, I think, Sanderson, you were asking the, the congregation how many of them were spiritual and about a third put up their hand. And I think that's about what I found in terms of my, um, uh, my, my interviews. But when you ask them if they believe they had a soul, this was actually very surprising. Half, half of the people put their hands up based on my quick, you know, uh, hand count as I went around the room. Um, but generally, people were turned off by the term spirituality. It's so uh, interesting. I like it's still for me when I say it, it doesn't necessarily ring true to the deepest. I've, I say it with a footnote around it, but I even as I'm going to hear that element of doubt go into my voice, but I'm an atheist with spiritual feelings and a spiritual life. I, I wouldn't say that I've got a soul in the contemporary, uh, in the sort of traditional understanding of it, some sort of infinite thing which carries on afterwards, but I certainly wouldn't say I'm soulless. And no one, like even the people who don't think there's an infinite soul will not say that, oh yeah, I'm a soulless person. And and that's the sort of thing that it is uh, interesting to go and uh, explore there was one person who I read in your research who uh, defined uh, spirituality as, uh, where is it? A, a sense of, it's really interesting, uh, a, a sense of smallness, you know, which is which was really uh, something that we can all understand. Uh, you as a short man more than most, Josh. Uh, and by the way, I, wasn't, I didn't bring it up to, to make that joke. I, it just appeared on the horizon. Uh, but that, yeah, we people will know what it feels like to feel insignificant, to feel so tiny. The universe is so big. And, you know, that is for them spirituality. Yes. But I, I also think like, lots of people experience that feeling without necessarily using that term you know especially in things like nature again people will feel a sense of awe and, and maybe have these kind of you know feeling so small like standing in front of a big mountain or in the grand canyon or something or you know you'll feel your sense of smallness and for some that would be a sense of spirituality and for others that that wouldn't you know it, it, it really depends on definition of how people view that term i think i think that's right and i think it, it highlights one of the real challenges of doing this work because non-religious, post-religious, secular people have a very broad range of terminology that is acceptable to them to describe this feeling of being in community, connecting with each other, connecting with our highest values. I, I think it's interesting, Josh, you talked about doing a sort of poll of people at the Sunday Assembly, because I've occasionally done that for my own gratification of my members. Uh, and one of the questions that I sometimes ask is, I ask them all to close their eyes because this can really mess up <laughs> a community if people know that other people feel differently about them like this. But And just ask, how many of you feel that this is your religion? And we get about half our people put their hands up for that. And, and I, I ask how many people feel like this is definitely not your religion and everyone else puts their hands up. And that's really interesting. Yeah, again, James, so that, that speaks to really the, the definition of religion again, though, doesn't it? Because, you know, as a, as a sociological kind of point of view, one of the most widely kind of um, used definitions of religion we turn to is Durkheim. And in terms of Durkheim's yes. definition... Ugh. 
I hate Dirk Holm's definition of religion. Oh, do you? I think it should be excised from the world. Oh, well, before, before we get rid of it altogether, um, for the listeners, it doesn't include any, um, any talk of anything supernatural or, or any god or gods, right? So it's, a, right. so it's about coming together under a unified system of beliefs. And mm-hmm. that's problematic for lots of reasons. But, you know, that would encompass maybe why some people in your congregation feel, feel that it is their religion. Also, they turn up on a Sunday, they dedicate their lives to it, they build community and they do all the things that you would in a religion. And again, for our listeners, uh, Emil Durkheim is known as the father of sociology. And for him, his redefinition of religion, because traditionally it had been associated with uh and I'm sure I've mentioned this on other podcasts, it'll be associated with belief in a supernatural deity. That would be in the, like, the foundational thing. But he looked at Theravada Buddhism. Uh, and uh, for instance, uh, there's always another one, uh, Jainism uh, uh, as well, without a God, and said, well, look, these things are religions. The reason that it upsets me is that I think it really blocks uh, progress in society as a whole, because what we need to respond, he says, confidently knowing the answer for all of society is something which has got a lot of the characteristics of a religion. You know, we like there are there's a decline in sense of belonging, decline in sense of meaning. You know, where are we in the world? How do we go and connect to each other? This is traditionally when a new religion would come up, which go in and answered the calls of the age. But that word goes and puts people off. And so we end up not really being able to come up with the policy solutions to put a really ugly uh, sort of uh, label on it for it. And I think that something like the worldview, like what we need is a new worldview, uh, what we need is a new belief system. Uh, But again, the problem with worldview is like everyone's like, what on earth does that mean? So you're getting a real thing of like, you know, not wanting to use these terms, but actually these terms are some of the best descriptions for the things that you're doing. So it's it's uh, really tricky. And I think it gets onto a question that we were asked for uh, by uh, Gillian uh, Klaus in uh, Silicon Valley, which uh, was about, you know, what is lost? by doing these practices out of the context of their religions? What do you think is a danger from reimagining this sort of thing in a new context? It's a great question, isn't it? I think when you take a practice like the Sunday Assembly has done, um, and it's made no secret of the kind of way it's imitated and secularised you know, a particular style of Christian worship, some of the practices might seem to be hollowed out slightly and thus lose some meaning, especially when it comes to things like ritual. And and rituals are really important, I think, in terms of um, congregations and religion, um, because it gives you a kind of calendar, something to work around, something which happens yearly, something familiar. Um, And having rituals which are hollowed out is difficult. And one of the best things about you know, creating new religion, well, creating new movements is you can, you can start um, new rituals. Uh, but that's also like the worst thing about it, right? Because you have to create new rituals. Um, so, you, you know, you've got all this freedom, but how do you make it meaningful? Um, and I think that's a real, real kind of um, sticky, sticky question. 
yeah, I'm always drawn to uh, the <laughs> how it's been done in the past. Uh, he says, sort of accidentally uh, sounding really conservative uh, for someone who doesn't identify that way. Uh, but you know, if you go and look at what Christianity did, or you know, the different pagan religions, you just go and slap the the new uh, the new statue on the old religion. You know, do, do like syncretic thing of like going, okay, yeah, we we all used to go and worship at this well. Uh, turns out it's now. Uh, Saint Tony's well, who has the exactly the same properties of the wood nymph we used to worship here, uh, uh, and and I think that's shown in Yule Rock, which is our uh, Christmas celebration, uh, where the songs which are sung are, uh, you know, like all the sort of secular Christmas classics. I, I would I would love to sing the Christian ones. I, I, I love a good carol, but that will set off a war inside Sunday Assembly about whether we should or not. Uh, and the, the reason I turn up to Sunday Assembly is specifically so I don't have to listen to Oh, Come All Ye Faithful ever again. Uh, and uh, sometimes that sounds ridiculous. And then some for some people, it's a trauma trigger. So we don't sing them. The, the actual event where people do Yule Rock is one of the closest things that we get to, other than at the conference where you get the people who really believe in Sunday Assembly and they've traveled there and they're like hardcore. That's where you can generate some of that feeling that you'd get in a sort of Pentecostal sort of church where there's that that thickness in the air where the belief is strong and the, you know, the air starts to wobble and sounds hit you differently and it becomes a bit mystical. Uh, I would say that when everyone's got their Christmas jumpers on and they're singing along, people are crying, people are laughing, people are dancing because due to capitalism still putting on the values of family, the values of uh, you know, hope, the values of connection, all of these things, it, it actually still does have this really strong emotional underpinning and people get into it. And they really go and like, it's one of the most powerful ones that we have. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing to go and answer that question. Do you think it's cultural appropriation to go and build on some of these old things? That is a good question, Sanderson. I don't, um, I don't think it is because I think the Sunday Assembly is, um, you know, quite open about its uh, copying or mimicking or imitating of, of, of a Christian church, right? And I think, Sanderson, to quote you a long time ago, you said something like, you know, Christianity is like 2,000 years on us, right? So it's doing lots of stuff very well, Um and, you know, we're copying it, we're secularizing it, we're taking the things which do work out of it um, and, and we're, we're, we're turning it into a way that non-religious people um, can enjoy it. So I think that you have acknowledged the fact that it is, you know, based on a Christian kind of sense of style of worship. Um, and I don't think it's an, a kind of inappropriate adoption of that. It's not... Um, you know, it's, it's not anti-theistic, is it? It's not rude. It's not necessarily, you know, lots of the things which happen in the Sunday Assembly. I can remember the old thing which used to be said, that like God was left at the door or faith is left at the door. Um, so I don't think it is. But but I do think kind of the question, which was like stripping the meat from the bones, um, does have some problems in terms of creating glue, ho- hollowing out, you know. But I agree. I've been to Yule Rock. I've, I've sported my festive Christmas jumper and 
Sun Mariah Carey and all of the classics. Um, and it is a lot of fun. But Christmas generally is a lot of fun, isn't it? You know, but how, how can you create those moments? Uh, the thing which is really great for creating a very uh, emotionally powerful Sunday assembly is a, a good old fashioned uh, terrorist atrocity. Uh, obviously, these are tragedies. Uh, but what's interesting is because they are tragic and because they're connected to such deep feelings, when people turn up to the Sunday assembly, it's like from a real place of need. It's from this real need for community, for togetherness, and it just gets to the, like, it cuts underneath uh, a lot of the sort of uh, perceptions that we have in the normal world. I'd say it's like an existential opening. People are, like, come there with their hearts open and with their needs out uh, in front of them. And then when you do and connect it, then it is so powerful. And, uh, yeah, so it is you know, these things end up triggering it, but it is so hard to like to go and like make, put all the meat on the bones, you know, to even go and write all, like all the different theologies. Why do we, uh, why do we gather? Why do we do this? And uh, those books need to be written. Like, that's how you get that sort of uh, heft or maybe just cut it, cut and paste and replace the word Lord with life. And we'll see how far we get. James, do you have uh, questions about whether what you're doing is cultural appropriation? Well, I think it's an interesting question. No, it's definitely not cultural appropriation because we don't, we explicitly avoid doing things that take from other religious traditions. So we, we wouldn't do, for instance, a, a secular Shabbat service or, you know, a secular Yom Kippur. Um, because we're not a Jewish congregation and, and we don't really do a secular Christmas celebration. We do something at the Christmas season um, that has songs and stuff, but it doesn't try and replicate any of the religious aspects of of Christian Christmas. Well, we don't do any of the ritualistic elements of, so we don't try and do like, I don't know what it would look like. I, I guess this question is an intriguing one to me because firstly, I don't think you can culturally appropriate in the bad way, the dominant culture. So I don't think it, it is actually relevant to Christian, uh, to, to white Christianity, since that's the dominant culture in the United Kingdom, religiously speaking, at least as far as religion goes. And definitely in the United States, it's definitely the hegemonic culture in the united states so you can't appropriate that in the bad way it is the powerful thing so even a thing that tried purposefully to take it and change it would be undermining the hegemonic influence it wouldn't be culturally appropriating a less powerful cultures thing the united states is still a christian nation in a very profound sense and so in this country you will get people, including secular people, who argue that we shouldn't do group singing because that is inherently religious, right? And that to do something like that together as a group is, is to take something from religious culture in an illegitimate way. You get both religious and secular people arguing like that. And I, I think it's hard to 
underplay the extent to which the religious environment in the United Kingdom and the United States is wholly different. And that changes how this culture, this conversation occurs. For sure. And now I am uh, realising that we're getting to the end of our time, but I've, we've only scratched the surface on this, Josh. So we should get you back to dig into it more. Uh, what are you researching now? Where, uh, where do you want to take the questions that you started uh, asking? Speak. Speak. I mean, I mean, recently I've been travelling across Europe um, looking at young millennials, um, non-religious millennials, asking them the same kind of questions about where they're finding a sense of connection. Um, so I've been doing that for the past couple of years. Um, I think it's important to kind of keep up these questions, particularly in countries um, which aren't very well researched. Um, so I've got some research coming out on that at the moment. Uh, I would like to return to the Sunday Assembly at some point. I've not been in a very long time, in fact. Um, so I've kind of missed out on what you guys have been doing in terms of Zoom conferences and uh, all, all of that stuff. Um, but I think this kind of question on connection is really what my research points down to. Uh, you know, where do people find a sense of connection? And I think, at least in the UK and the US, uh, maybe slightly slower rate is that whilst we kind of transition to a more non-religious society, that people will still see, seek a sense of connection. Um, and just because maybe Christianity is wavering in the UK doesn't mean that people uh, won't still seek kind of religious or spiritual experiences. I love that your last sentence is so wise and then neatly points exactly to the complicated uh, nature of the word religion and spiritual in a uh, post-Christian non-religious context. So oh, there's uh, a lot going on there, isn't there? There is a lot going on there. Josh, you are great. I really like you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. How was that? For me, great. How's it for you? Uh, I'm just going to say there that I hope no one thought that when I said that what really sort of gets people emotionally connected is a terrorist atrocity. I wasn't making light of the situation. But, you know, the reason that... Those Sunday assemblies are so weighty, so they've got such moment, is because something very serious has happened. So anyway, that is, um, you know, and said with all, all due respect, obvs, but you know that you're one of the listen to the enders. You're one of the people who really hangs around for the last drop of goodness. Uh, what has been happening in the lifefulness world, we have had great community gatherings. We are really pushing ahead on some work around offsites and remote teams. That's something which has been really interesting. So in my work with companies, there are so many people who are moving to remote work. There's so many people who are moving to hybrid work. That's when you're sort of remote, but then you sometimes turn up. That they really need to start thinking about how do you go and create community? How do you go and create connection? And guess what? Uh, there's someone I know who sort of thinks he's got a few answers to that. So that's been the thing which I've been doing. Uh, also sort of experimenting with videos, mostly sort of putting a lot of work into stuff and then thinking that it's going to go and really spread far and wide and then realizing that oh, it doesn't always do that. So, uh, but it's been really fun making videos. I'm going to go and do more of it, uh, hopefully about the topics that we bring up. At the moment, they sort of have to be about the stuff that we do, which is a bit more, oh, this is what we do, as opposed to, 
this is what we're interested in, but that can change. And uh, yeah, that's about it. What else is there? Yeah. We, we did a podcast for a year. The, I know the one from last week is a sort of anniversary, but yeah, thanks for hanging around. You're great. I've got, have I told you that I'm expecting uh, another kid? Yeah, it's going to be really soon. I haven't really spoken to many people about it. I think I did mention it once on this podcast. It's been the only place I've mentioned it publicly. But uh, yeah, that's going to happen in four weeks' time. Imagine that. Another little person. Uh, we're going to do a gender reveal. We've hired some coloured flames, just about, you know, 40 cubic tonnes of coloured, I won't say what, uh, napalm. And it's going to be very discreet in a park in a desiccated patch of land on the coast of Greece. And we think it's going to be a small thing. Uh, yeah, you, we're going to take a picture from space and it's going to be it's small, big, small, very dramatic. But uh, yeah, cannot wait to tell you because the gender of a child is so important. Uh, right, that's it. I love you. You're great. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Josh Bullock. Go and track him down online in various other places. Thanks to James Croft. I love you, man. Uh, thanks to Mav Shetty and to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to right now.